Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and on this episode, we explore the wonderful offerings in Argyll. First, I meet with Gordon Campbell Gray and talk to him about his businesses, which include the Pure House in Port Appen and the Three Chimneys on Sky. His aim for all his businesses is for them to be best in class, and it would appear that he's doing a great job of that. Then I talk oysters with Judith Fike, who grows and supplies some of the most sought-after oysters to top restaurants and chefs across the country. I then head back to the Pier House, where I meet head chef Michael Lethley. He told me about how Providence has become so important when running a restaurant, and just how lucky he is to have his supplier so close by. On my final stop in Argyle, I met Mark Grant, whose butcher shop has been serving local people, businesses and tourists alike for the last 18 years. I'm now joined by Gordon Campbell Gray, founder of The Wee Hotel Company. Hi Gordon, how are you? Hello, good afternoon. We're sitting in uh, the Pure House Hotel, which is lovely, and we might be able to hear some fire crackling in the background. Um, but how did you start your journey into becoming owner of The Wee Hotel Company? I've always been involved with my previous company, Campbell Gray Hotels, which was an international five-star hotel company. And I have a house very near here on the loch, and I used to come here regularly and sit and have Longestine, a glass of wine, and think of all the people who were either on a plane or on the M25 and thinking I was the luckiest person in the world. And then one day, the um, previous owner said, we, we feel now we've really had, it's time to go back down to England and we think we'll sell, do you know anyone who might be interested? Well, it was kind of like, how about me? And they said, right answer. and. We bought it. So has it always been that sort of local produce, like eating the fresh seafood straight from the boat, that kind of thing? I mean, it absolutely has. I think the magic for me was literally sitting, having the, the most amazing longest scene I never had and thinking, you know, it's so wonderful. It's the best of everything local. And it was always like this. And we have carried that on and I think maybe extended it a little bit. So extended it, is that bringing in other local, local um, suppliers for your menu? Yes, exactly. And really, really being aware of the sourcing, knowing the suppliers, building this relationship with them, which of course, historically, uh, has been was easier, but we were all locked down, as you know, and they suffered just like us. We had no business, they had no business. And it was very important for us to keep the connection, to say, please hang on, because the minute we can reopen we'll be back with you and that's what's happened. Have you found over the years that people are becoming more discerning when it comes to tourism and what they can get from their food and drink experience? A hundred percent. It really matters. And I think with the recent environmental considerations taking front page more than ever, I think it's it's very awkward. I mean, I think 
quite frankly, some people, you feel guilty if you eat an avocado or you feel guilty if you eat a banana. I mean, we've always felt guilty if we eat a blueberry. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's weird that suddenly uh, so many things we are recognizing are not appropriate. So everything we do locally, I think, has more resonance than it's ever had before. And do you still enjoy a glass of wine in the Langoustine sitting out here? I so do. I so do. It's it's my death row meal. Uh, Langoustine that are just as as they say if they're any fresh you have to slap them. They're so they're so good. Yeah, no, it's my favourite thing in the world. And yeah, so you mentioned your your other company. Is it was it like a family thing? Have you always kind of grown up in sort of hospitality hotels, or was this something you kind of struck out on your own and did? Oh, I totally struck out on my own. My family were horrified I wanted to go into hotels they they could just couldn't understand what I would do and I actually wanted to be an architect but I couldn't pass a science exam with all the private tuition I couldn't do it so I was a bit stuck my aunt used to invite me all the time to dinner in Claridge's when I was in London and I just thought it was so amazing and I thought you know I would love to do this and that was really the moment that I made the decision and I went to hotel school and I hated it. I actually left hotel school. And originally I was kind of ashamed that I'd done that. But as I grew older, I was quite proud I'd done it because I felt I felt it was a bit torturous actually. And I thought it would be better to just go and work in great hotels and learn my craft that way, which I did. And really being a hotelier was what I think I was born to do. But the, the flip side to that is that actually, because I've always designed my own hotels with teams, but I've always kind of spearheaded it, I ended up really being like an architect and designer without all the kind of dreary bit of drawing up the plans with the electrics and things which I would have hated. I just wanted of the big picture. So I feel it was, I got to design them and then run them. So it's been quite a nice story. And is the design influenced by the location? Absolutely. I mean, we've, we, we have historically created hotels in the Caribbean and in Lebanon, and we've made them. The one in Lebanon was very sexy and glamorous, Caribbean, very calm and peaceful. And here, for example, in, in Port Appen, the building is tells the story because it was the boat, it was the pier house. And we just tried to make it what you would expect, I think, nothing unexpected, just make it very welcoming, very cosy, very local. And the same in Sky, not making it dramatic and not five star, but just appropriate for location. And so in Sky, it's the Three Chimneys, and you took that over fairly recently, although time has no meaning now. Yeah, three years. Was that a bit of a dream come true, or was it sort of fortuitous timing, <coughs> or how did it come about? The Three Chimneys is a very unusual one because normally, historically, over my whole career, I've pretty well built things from scratch. And we've taken a building and we have developed something out of it with a complete concept in mind. So it was very unusual to get involved in a project, which was a hotel which was established, beautifully established, famous globally. Um, and knowing that people would book lunch or dinner at Three Chimneys and then plan their trip around Scotland, because that was the hardest table to get. So enormous pressure to take that over and enormous pressure to maintain it and achieve the expectation that was in people's mind. And I think we've managed to do that. We've obviously, we've tweaked it to just make it a little bit our own, but we haven't changed too much. And it's as busy as ever. 
So it, that is a one-off for us because normally we would start from scratch. I take it it was just too good an opportunity, but like you say, because of the name and the um, how well known it was. Previous owners I knew, and one day they said they were thinking maybe it was time after many years, 35 years. I just thought, as you just said, it was a little bit about, well, I would never have thought of that. And it was a one-off and it never went on the market. So it was a kind of done on a friendly basis and seamlessly. And yeah, it was unique really to get such an opportunity. And I, I love food. I love the food here at the Pier House, which is, um, you know, the lobster straight out the loch, the creels at the end of the pier, all the local suppliers, and a chef who I completely love because I think he does a wonderful job with the ingredients, keeping it simple, but not plain. Everything's got a bit of imagination to it. But the Three Chimneys is, is a, it's at a different level. I just feel, in life, it's all about being best in class. So whatever you choose to do, be the best. And I think they both sit very comfortably best in class. And the Three Chimneys is certainly a gastronomic experience. And if you've traveled all that way, I mean, it's a whole hour once you've crossed the bridge, so it's far away. So it has to be marvelous. And I think I can confidently say it is. And since I'm not cooking the food, it's not self-praised. The chef is amazing and his team are amazing. And so I'm very proud of it. And I think it's wonderful for Scotland to have such a high level of, of kitchen in such a remote place than again with the local, the seafood and the foraging. And, and it, it's kind of a magic place. And you said you, you love you love your food. Was that something that you've always kind of had in you? So obviously you're saying you went to Claridge's and that's when you decided to kind of go into you know, in hospitality. But has there always been a sort of foodie element to your upbringing and you as a person or is it something that came kind of later on? I would say I've always loved food. I mean, food was a very important component at home. We ate well and uh, we talked about food. It wasn't, it wasn't elaborate food, but it was the best of Scottish food. And then, of course, when I travelled and created hotels in exotic parts, shall we say, it exposed to me to so many, I mean, the Caribbean, all the, the kitchen there was wonderful. We created an Asian restaurant in the Caribbean, which was had never been done, I think. And I find that really challenging and exciting. So I, I yes, I love food. I don't mean I have to do a three Michelin star tour through France. I Sometimes I'm just as happy going to a brasserie and the bistro in the corner. I love French onion soup and a steak frite. All these things, I just say, be best in class. Even through lockdown, I mean, my friends were ringing up, saying, what are you having? But my whole, my whole agenda was based around my um, menus for lockdown. And uh, if I was in the house, my own with my dogs, everything was planned. So I knew I was having for dinner. I knew if I was having a dry martini tonight, I'm having a Negroni tomorrow. I never sat sloppily with a television. I, mean, I sat at the table and I, I just love... I love food. I love conversation around food. So everything I do is it, it's a big part of my life. Not always. I mean, I was just talking to someone earlier, and they were they were saying they'd just been for a week somewhere in Scotland holiday. And I said, as long as just one night, you can have fantastic fish and chips. So at every level, just be the best. And yeah, I, I, to answer. In one word, yes, I love food. I think also you mentioned lockdown as well. More, I think more people go into food and drink and trying to do their own, make their own cocktails and meals from scratch in a way that you maybe didn't before because <clears throat> life was too busy. It was quite an interesting time, I think. Well, yes, my food journey has usually been restaurants and I'd be eating out four or five times a week, every week, wherever I was in the world. So 
always thinking of where to go for dinner. And suddenly it was in every night. And my repertoire, I realized, had limitations. And I would never say if I had friends coming to dinner that my idea of heaven was to spend the whole day in the kitchen. It's not. I really don't want a meal to take much more than an hour of my time. So I had a limitation in my repertoire. It is much expanded now, I have to say. And uh, yeah, I've enjoyed creating things. I didn't do banana bread like everyone else, but but I just just uh, just preparing things well. I mean, I, I was yesterday I bought some monkfish, and I was just telling Fiona, the manager here, about what I'd done with the monkfish, and she said, "Oh my God, you can make that sound so exciting!" I said, "But it was. It was the best thing I've ever eaten." So I I just love that. Just creative, creative. So you've talked about what you enjoy eating here at Langstein's with the wine. Is there a specific dish in Sky that you would kind of go your go-to when you go up there? Chef does such amazing things and there are lots of surprises. And sometimes it could be, for example, there was a, a little pigeon pie served with partridge and there was this, this little pie. I remember thinking, it's just a magic addition to the dish. So he does an amazing whipped potato that is a whole new perspective on mashed potatoes and it's the process to make this little dish of potato is so labor intensive so complicated and in the end it arrived it just looks like mashed potato till you put your fork in and you think i could just live in this forever so sometimes i think great cooking is about taking a simple ingredient and just making it sing so the whipped potato and the three chimneys is worth a visit alone. I need to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Many of them may not exist, but Gordon told me about the positive impacts he has seen from the pandemic on his business and tourism. Scottish tourism has really had a shot in the arm, um, staying at home, and Scottish people discovering Scotland, in many cases, areas of Scotland they didn't know before. I've, I've been astonished at the number of people who've said, I've never been here, I've never been there. Um, so I think the lockdown and then everyone getting out the trap, so to speak, has been very encouraging. We've had so many families staying here and it's been so lovely to see them arriving on paddle boards or kayaks and it's almost old fashioned. And I think that's been a lovely aspect of, I mean, I, I looked out one day here and there was a couple, very attractive couple with lovely kids and they were, they were having wine and a big seafood platter, ice cream with chocolate sauce. And then I noticed they were in wetsuits. And I thought, I wonder who they are. And I walked, followed them down in the distance and they got onto the paddle boards and off they went. And I thought, and they were, the children were so excited and they were looking at the lobsters. And, and I remember thinking, wow, this is hospitality at its best. This is, we're giving real treats to these children who historically probably might have been off in Spain or the south of France. It's just, I think it's brought people back to local and I find that really lovely. And now it's darkest winter. I love it. And the hotel's still busy and people you can go for a walk, come in chilly of hot chocolate and a scone by the fire and I'll, I just think it's wonderful. So I'm I'm enjoying that 
And as I say, a lot of Scots are discovering bits of Scotland, which is nice. And do you think that's likely to continue now it's started? Do you think maybe next year if people can go abroad, they'll maybe still choose to be here? I think so. I think people will continue. I think some people have a very pent-up desire to travel. I mean, I know somebody, we were all talking the other night, and said, if you could just go one place that wasn't home, where would it be? And I said, honestly, the thought of going to Italy and going to... Positano and having a Negroni and the waiters wearing a white dinner jacket and having a wonderful pasta, vongole. I said, so I think we have a pent-up desire to do a bit of that. But I think a lot of people at the same time are finding it lovely to just throw everything in the back of the car and discover their own country. Gordon told me about what he believes to be the most important elements of the business to get right. What we're just trying to do is stay local, look after local suppliers as they look after us. And I think it's an important aspect of where people are just now. And I think, um, you know, coming back to this guilt thing, if you eat an avocado, you feel guilty. If you eat a banana, you feel guilty. I don't know what we're meant to do. If you drive a petrol car, guilty. If you fly in a plane, guilty. We're in a very tricky, the world's in a very tricky place at the moment. And I think keeping this aspect of it, the food local, I think it's quite magical, actually. And I think more and more people appreciate it and are aware of it. Um, But it's so easy to just, I mean, when you're shopping and look at the sourcing of things and you're going, really, asparagus from, you know, South America in November, it's just not on. And yet, you start to think about the people who are farming the asparagus. And you do, I mean, whatever you do, it's, it's a muck-up, isn't it? So I think it's difficult at the moment, I think the world... But, but I think, from our point of view, local, keep our teams together, look after the teams. I always say, if you want a successful business, love your staff. And that's, I think, genuinely what I can say I do. I think we're a lovely amount, door the chefs and everything. So that's it, really, just... Keeping it simple. Have you found, you know, there's staffing issues all over the place recently and it's just, I don't know if it's Brexit or COVID or <clears> a mixture of both. Have you found that kind of ethos does, does help you kind of keep people close? Well, it, it's, it's a very difficult time. I mean, I, I um, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the um, Leading Hotels of the World annual convention in Lisbon. It was two years delayed. And it's hotels, top hotels from all over the world. And everybody has the same problem. And it, ours is compounded by Brexit, obviously, but Europe, South America, North America, everybody's got the same problem and it's really bizarre. And I think one of the, the key things is obviously people have really assessed how they want to live. Mm-hmm. I equate the problems in our industry with, imagine if you had a mother with a dementia in a care home and there was no one to bathe her. I mean, these are real scenarios. And I don't have a mother in that position, but I'm just imagining that people do. And I thought, how awful is that? So we're going through a very weird scenario. And there are, there are I know, some five-star hoteliers who, first of all, they can only rent out half the hotel because they've no staff to service the rooms even. You've got sales managers doing beds. And I mean, everybody's gone into a very weird alternative mode. And it's not as though there's any immediate light at the end of the tunnel. It, it's eggshells at the moment we're all walking on and um, I think it's just important to stay calm and as I say the most important thing is we all need to be kind because I think it's a very 
important ingredient. So there's a couple of like quick fire questions at the end of the podcast. So if you just say the first thing that comes into your head. Whenever I'm hungry, I think of... Mince and potatoes. Comfort food for me is... Oh, that would be mince and potatoes. My favourite childhood dessert is... Red jelly with banana in it. My food heaven is... Roast partridge. And my food hell is... Tripe. Yeah, a few people have said that. <laughs> There's no question that my my exotic kind of food is lobster termidor I adore, but mince and potatoes is a bit of a death row meal for me as well because I just love mince and potatoes and everybody hates it. They go boiled carrots, boiled onions, boiled... Yeah, and they say, oh, how awful, but I love it. It's quite comforting. My dad puts brown sauce in it. See, he's ruined it for me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Total pleasure, thank you. Thank you. Today I'm joined by Judith Vike of the Caledonia Oyster Company and we're standing on the beautiful banks of Loch Creven. Creven. It's a beautiful sunny day, it's absolutely freezing. But yeah, so this is where you farm your oysters, is that right? Yes, that's right, yes. And how long have you been doing this for? Well, we've been in Loch Creven since 1995. And before that you were? Uh, we were on Herm Island, down in the Channel Islands in Guernsey. So what made you move up here? Well... One of the reasons was I wanted to come back home again and another reason was we had a couple of kids and they would have had to go to boarding school and neither of us wanted that to happen so that was really why. There were two reasons really. And have you always kind of, is this like a family business, have you always kind of been in this sort of industry? Well no I haven't, I, um, I only got into the industry because I met my husband uh, and he had just started oyster farming. And I was thinking, oh, that sounds good fun. So, I, so, it, but it has become a family business, yeah. So can you just explain a little bit about the process of oyster farming? Well, we farm the Pacific oyster, which doesn't spawn in Scotland. So we buy the spat oysters, baby oysters, in at about pinky nail size and seven millimetres, sort of thing like that. Uh, we buy them in every uh, it's spring springtime and maybe again in the autumn we put them out into mesh bags so bags with you know a certain size of hole so that they can still filter the seawater but they're protected then we put the bags out at low tide so twice a day they uncover but the rest of the time they're filtering the seawater and growing and what is it about this sort of location that makes it so kind of special for your produce well Loch Rearin is it's a very good loch in the sense that it's very protected. It's quite a sheltered bay where we are, so we don't really get too much trouble with bad storms or anything like that, which would be a problem, uh, damaging bags. Generally, we're a, gr a grade A classification, so we've got, we don't have to worry too much about any contamination with E. coli, bacteria, viruses. We don't get bothered with toxins. And so that's really why. That is, it's one of the better lochs, yeah. And is that just because of how pure the, the loch is? Yes, yeah. And the lack of, there's not many people live around it, so there's no runoff going into the, the water. There's not very little farmland as well, so that's not contaminating either. So I should kind of probably explain what we're looking at. So we're, it is, it's surrounded, it looks like, by big hills and pretty yeah. much all yeah. sides. Yeah, you're looking up towards Appins that way and then further on you've got Glencoe and then coming round this side you've got the Morven Peninsula round to Lismore and then further round you, you can get, you'll see Mull as well. 
And what uh, what kind of restaurants do you supply your oysters to? Locally, we supply the Pier House in Appen, Eask in Oban, uh, the Waterfront in Oban, and then a lot get taken down to Edinburgh and get distributed around there. We've got a wholesaler that I supply down there. And what's the, so if anyone wants in, so oyster farming's obviously, like you say, they're in mesh. Can you kind of wild pick oysters or is that sort of a bit not really something you would do here? We wouldn't do it because we found the Pacific oyster, that is a farm species. And you wouldn't want them lying on the ground because then they're prone to getting predation from crabs, starfish. So the bags are protecting them in that sense. Do you have a favourite dish? Like, do you eat them? Certainly do. <laughs> yes, certainly do. It's not one of those things you're sick of after. No, not at all. Um, no, maybe two or three every day. Yeah. Just checking their quality. And do you just eat them fresh? I do. When I'm, I, when I'm here, yeah, just straight out the shell. Yeah, but I do cook them at home. Uh, I like them with uh, grilled, under the a hot grill with parmesan and cream. Or I like making steak and oyster pie, uh, make a soup, um, pasta, put them through pasta. You buy them at certain times of the year. Are they a seasonal thing? No, um, the Pacific oyster isn't seasonal. Well, you maybe heard about you could only eat oysters when there's an hour in the month. And that is due to, that's more to do with the native oyster, which is actually spawning. There's a British native oyster and it's spawning in the summer months. So you don't want to be eating that because, you know, you're wanting to get as many babies as you can. Um, But the Pacific oyster is available all year round and it varies in taste. It can be quite creamy in the summer and it becomes thinner in in the winter time just with lack of food. And so are you from round about here, so you wanted no, to come home? No, I'm, I'm originally from Perthshire, Dunkeld, but there's not any oyster farms out that way, so we had to come to the West Coast. But I love the West Coast, I really, I think it's an amazing place to be. Despite the weather sometimes? Despite the weather, but generally it's not as bad as you think, you know, and I've got my dad still in Perthshire and we have an ongoing battle who's got the best weather that day. So. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, I'm from Fife and it's always right. East versus West. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you very much. Thank you. You're very welcome. I enjoyed speaking to Gordon Campbell Gray earlier in the podcast while visiting him at one of his businesses, The Pure House. Whilst there, I caught up with the head chef, Michael Lethley, who, having worked in big cities in the past, relishes the opportunities of running a more remote kitchen. So now I'm joined by Michael Leithley, who's the head chef at the Pier House Hotel in Port Appen. Hi, Michael. Hi, good afternoon. Afternoon, how are you? I'm very well. It's a bit chilly, but I'm good. So I've just been for quite a long walk and it's very cold. I know, I've just invested in an electric bike and whizzed down, but I didn't realise that old wind in your face and the cold. Everyone says it's refreshing, but I'm undecided. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got a while to work that out. As we said, you are the head chef here. So how did you come to get this job? I knew Fiona from when we were working together in Glasgow in a fish restaurant. And at the time, I was trying to open my own zero-waste bakery and fruit and veg shop, which didn't go at all well. And she asked if I would like to come out and see the pier house and maybe come and work here. And of course, we came up and it was just stunning. I remember the day we came up with Jonas, my son, and... We sat on the balcony and ate oysters, looking over the sunny day in the Highlands. I was like, "Well, I think I could. I think I could get used to this." <laughs> so, it's just so dramatic. And have you always been into 
being a chef and cooking and things like your whole career or is this a bit of a change? I did a GCSE in catering when I was 15 years old and I've always been in and out of restaurants since then. I did study fine art for a while but I found uh, I preferred the kitchen world to the art world. There's something inherently more, I don't know, pragmatic about being in kitchens and I like the immediacy of the response from people and is where the art world can be a bit navel-gazing and chin-stroking. I like the fact that... You know, you make something and it's either bleh or mmm. And there's no real grey area to that, where in the art world there's a lot of kind of fluffing and changing and you can kind of make excuses for things, where in kitchens there's an inherent honesty to it that I really appreciate. And I suppose it is a bit like art, isn't it? It can be, yeah. There is a... I say it's more like craft. You know, you've got the... There's a real craft and skill to it. You have to have a basic level of skill and understanding. But like art, you can be creative with it. And in the, in, like in the art world, there's a lot of different areas you can fit into. So, you know, we, you know we've got the high-end temples of gastronomy where you've got the kind of nice, simple gastropubs and nice kind of cafes. And it's about, I think, picking that area and doing what you do well. Like when I was in doing art, I did a lot of illustration, which again is a bit more technical and a bit more practical. And I think that reflects in what I do is I like to pick a theme over like, like the pier house food and the, the food is simple and it's got to reflect the area and reflect the fishermen that fish and the farmers and the oyster farmers and it's about keeping that story clear so yeah and yeah I suppose it is in a long-winded way there I went <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you've mentioned the fishermen and the produce and things so how how does the menu reflect that is it basically all that kind of thing yes I mean we we, we have seafood heaven written on the door so it kind of statements it out try not to over chef things you know, there is a habit where, you know, people, chefs like to throw everything on the plate, every technique they've learnt, every sauce they've made. And I like to keep it very simple and let the, the food essentially speak for itself. You know, the langoustines are so fresh. They come straight in at the pier and Ewan, who fishes them for us, uh, for me, I mean, I'm in constant contact with him. And it just seems a shame to overrun it with so many different things when I can just serve it very simply cooked. But uh, I think it just screams quality and luxury again with the oysters with judith you know they reflect so much what's happening in that area the sea they you know when you see a a, a fresh oyster it, it is really the flavor of that area and for me to cover that with so much stuff like you know we used to do a kilpatrick here which had bacon and cheese and you couldn't actually get that natural flavor of the oyster and i think that's something i try to avoid if you've been doing this for a number of years, would you say that people are a bit more discerning when it comes to their food and where it's from? And is that, do you think, driving tourism a bit more these days? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I first started cooking, when I was, like I said, I, I had a, a work experience in Newcastle when I was 15 and provenance wasn't ever something that was talked about. You know, there was certain names of, you know, things that would, you know, would stand for luxury, but you wouldn't really... It's not... It, not everybody was as concerned about it. Now there is, I mean, especially with fishing and where fish comes from, it's gone the same way as where meat, you know, people are looking for proper provenance. And, uh, and it's a good thing. We should all know where our food comes from, and we got slightly disconnected from it in the 90s, maybe. But, yeah, there's definitely more of an understanding going on, and a lot more... I'm getting asked a lot more questions about it which I thought was just a bespoke little world of mine that I was interested in, you know, the difference between damsel netting and otter netting and how, what, what, what's dredging, what's hand dredging, you know, how does it all work? And 
but no, no, people are actually showing much more of an active interest in it. You don't talk about fishermen and the guy that gets your langoustines. Is it all mainly local producers that you use here? Oh, yes, absolutely. So we've got Judith, who's our oyster farmer, who's based, I mean, there's a 15-minute drive down the road. Ewan is our bookkeeper, but also uh, they've lived on this more for years, so they fish straight off the island and around here. Our mussels come from Loch Leven up in Fort William. And that's Shona and James who run that. And we try to encourage, especially when lockdown happened, you know, I came back and I wanted to really reduce where I got things from. I try to keep everything local to re-feed back into the local economy because they helped us through it. And we try and recreate that again here. But it's, yeah, the 50, we have a 50 mile rule and then the border rule. So, you know, we, could, we try to get everything within 50 miles of the hotel and worst comes to the worst, it stops at the border which is a great discipline to work with when you're working with food because, you know, it's easy to import beluga caviar or finger limes or things from all over the world. It's in, in building a very, very nice dish. But to use the restriction of the area is much more exciting. And like the old idea of like the French wine or terroir, what grows together, eats well together, I think that just naturally happens when you just try and work within the local remit. And do you find that's something that's a bit more prevalent in a rural area like here than when you were in Glasgow? Like, if you're in a city and you kind of have that bit more <laughs> access to what exactly what you want, is it a bit more easier to be like, oh, well, we're just going to not really think about it? I think the interesting thing is, is that cities are really interested in it now. And that that's a really good thing. You know, in a city, I found it, well, especially when I was working in London, at the time that was probably like early 2000s, and, you know, we were all suddenly talking about farm to fork and there was lots of names on menus. But I actually at the time couldn't guarantee. I mean, I knew the supplier and the supplier told me, but I've not been to the farm. I've personally. And the difference, I think, between being in the rural environment as opposed to being in an urban environment is you have to trust. There's a lot of trust based in it, whereas here, I mean, I know you and I can see his boat. I can go and see Judith. <laughs> And, you know, there's, not, there's nothing hidden about it. And I think it's having that, it's easier to have that relationship with the suppliers. Whereas in a, in a city that you're kind of reliant on people in between. And, you know, not that that's a bad thing, but it's, it, it would be harder. It would be more of a trek to drive two and a half hours to see your Langestine guy or three hours to go and see the oyster lady where I can, like, 15 minutes up the road when he pulls up to the pier, I can chat to him, you know, and then when they come down every day to see me. So it's, yeah, it's easier to form those relationships but I think that's what's more interesting it's like working collaboratively with them is uh, it's forming good relationships and strong bonds so that when things like COVID happen that we can support each other as businesses and just as people in general I think has been quite good. And what did happen here in COVID obviously the hotel would have shut down and was it just did you do like delivery boxes or anything um, or? It was all a bit of a shock really because we were going full tilt into a summer season and the first shutdown happened and we really didn't know quite what to do. It was very, it was very nervous for us because we, we didn't really know what was going on. Um, but Gordon actually took the lead here and was absolutely fantastic. And he's, our first priority was obviously to the, the staff. We made sure everyone was safe, everyone was looked after. We retained almost everyone which was amazing. The only reason why people left was they decided after lockdown that they might want to change their career, which we supported them on. Or um, some of them decided that, you know, maybe being in the rural areas wasn't too much for them. But that we, we really focused on uh, supporting the staff and the 
community around us. We didn't really do a lot of the takeaway side of things, uh, mainly because there wasn't really a call for it. And there was a lot of local people already doing it. So there was somebody who was making pizzas, there was one with a fish and chip van. And we felt as being the big hotel to suddenly wade in (laughs) and go, right, we're doing this. It, it, It wasn't really, it wouldn't have really been fair on them. We did do a kind of peer house at home when we could reopen because we couldn't sit as many people. So we had people in holiday cottages. So we offered a kind of a meal that you could reheat in the holiday cottage. I said, I think what our focus didn't become about just trying to make profit. It was about just looking after the people and trying, I said, try to fit into the community quite well. You probably get asked this all the time, but do you have a favourite Scottish produce to work with? In all honesty, I love Judas oysters. It's something I've never really come across before. They're so, so fresh. No, I don't, you know, the langoustines, the venison, you know, it. The, the local produce and, and the produce within Scotland is second to none. And the variety. I mean, there's chilies growing in Scotland. There's, um, you know, people making amazing cheeses. And it, it's, it's that variety to work with, but also finding your way around it, you know, and getting to try it all. Don't want to say anything as trite as whiskey, but I do use whiskey an awful lot. But the fish as well, when you can get fish from the fishermen, you see the, the, that difference in quality. And because it hasn't travelled as much. I mean, when I was working in London, you know, Scottish salmon was the thing to have. But it's been fished, it's been caught, it's been put... By the time it gets into Billingsgate Market and then into the restaurants, it could have been out of the water for at least two, three weeks. Whereas up here, the freshness is just unbelievable if you can get it before it gets transported and exported. If you... So this is this can be a bit of a difficult question, but if you could invite three people to a dinner party, dead or alive, who would they be and why? Oh... Three people to a dinner party. Weirdly, I have thought about this quite a lot, but one would be Anthony Bourdain, but purely because I've loved the book when I read it, and I read it and when it came out, and, you know, I think it's one of those ridiculous chefy things that, you know, he's come with this kind of idol <laughs> in a weird way. A guy called George Perrick, who was a French writer, who wrote these really, really interesting books that I would really like. Oh, oh so hard when there's so many. And Raymond Blanc who is, is a chef I greatly, greatly admire. I mean, there's loads I love, but there's something about, there's a friendliness to him and a kindness that, you know, you don't often see from chefs of that age or generation. It was a much different world then, but I mean, listening to him fuse even about something as simple as popcorn is kind of, you know, I think it would be an exciting table to sit at. I picked two French people, I didn't realise that, that's terrible. (laughs) Just finally, there's a sort of quick fire round at the end of the podcast, which is all about food. (laughs) So it's five questions if you tell me the first thing that comes into your head. So whenever I'm hungry, I think of... Ramen noodles. Comfort food for me is... Oh God, it's it's sliced white, cheap white bread with butter and marmite, but it's purely because I can't eat it anymore. <laughs> no, I really upset. I can't really eat a lot of bread anymore, which is a shame because I love it, but yeah. It's... My favourite childhood dessert is... This is a terrible one, but my favourite childhood dessert is it was Angel Delight. And it was um, the strawberry one because my gran always used to make it for me. So it was, that was a little treat I used to get. My food heaven is... Oysters at the end of the pier with a pint of Guinness. <laughs> and my food hell is... Anything... I mean, I'm not a big fan of cucumbers, but... um oh. That's all because I do eat a lot of things that I probably shouldn't. <laughs> you know, and anything bland is just that kind of you know, boiled boiled stuff. 
you know, and he's kind of, my, um, I'm not going to name the certain family member, but uh, Sunday dinners were always started the day before and all vegetables overboiled and kind of no salt, no seasoning. It's just, yeah, anything that's just over, almost deliberately bland, I just don't <laughs> understand, but that's it. It's quite a grand thing, that, though. Yeah. Boiling your veg. Cooking everything very, very well, yeah. you know? Because, <laughs> you know, there's bacteria in that and you need to boil it, but, um, yeah, anything bland would be my uh, big thing. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Now I'm joined by Mark Grant from Grant the Butchers in Tainot. Hi Mark. Hello. How are you? Very well, thank you. So can you tell me a bit about your business? Yeah, we've got a retail butcher shop that supply caterers as well. Been in there for 18 years now and everything seems to be going quite well. Mainly deal with customers in the shop but catering is still quite a big part of the business and supply a lot to the outlets in the region. And so is it something, is it like a family business, something you've always done, or did you kind of come into it 18 years ago? No, I just started 18 years ago. I used to work in the cash and carry previous, and I'd heard that the place was going to be coming up for lease, so I took it on, and I haven't looked back. It's been a really good, good experience. And so how did you sort of train to become a butcher? Was it just like kind of learning on the job? Yeah, I, I started in the butchers when I was 16, when I left school. It wasn't my intentions then, but... The way that unemployment was back then, I just took any job you could get and I've never done anything else. I'm still there. And what would you say is special about this area for that kind of produce? Just the quality of everything around here. It's a great, great lifestyle and we always get good compliments on everything we put out, so it's really satisfying. We make a lot of our own products, like our haggis, which has been an award-winning haggis, black pudding, fruit pudding, white pudding, all types of sausages and burgers. <laughs> Uh, and just good quality lamb and beef. And whereabouts do you get your meat from? I get my, my beef from a local farmer. It's uh, Bruce and Jean Campbell over at Achnacree Beg Farm in North Connell. And they also supply me with lambs, which are uh, first class, get really good comments from, from the customers that come. We also get uh, venison from a chap called Rob Cameron down in Easdale Island, so he takes care of the venison needs we have. Do you think um, that quality local produce such as what you supply helps drive tourism to this area? Yes, we're lucky. There's quite a lot of holiday lets round about us in Tanalp and we get we keep seeing the same people coming back and they take stuff away with them, especially like the haggis and black pudding, etc. And you know, I think it really adds to the area. We have got decent stuff in the shop. It's, it's really good. And do you have a favourite sort of uh, something from your shop that you would eat quite a lot? Oh, the, the black pudding is the don't really die for everybody just raves about, it. but we don't we don't have it promoted like Stormy does. But it's really anybody tastes it to say that that's fantastic. So I'll say that's one of our best sellers. So part of the podcast we have just five quick questions to do with food. So if you tell me the first things that comes into your head when I ask these questions, if that's okay. That's okay. So whenever I'm hungry, I think of... Uh, bacon, bacon and eggs. Comfort food for me is... I like uh, ice cream. <laughs> my favourite childhood dessert? Uh, it was uh, apple pie. My food heaven? Oh, piece of steak. And my food hell? Uh, uh, sauerkraut. I thought you were going to say be a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for joining me on my trip around Argyll. Next time I'll be visiting Skye and meeting some of the popular food producers and owners of businesses on the island. Scran is a logical podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton. Thank you.